The scripture reading for this study is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hunger, and he gave me meat. I was thirsty, gave me drink. I was a stranger, and he took me in. Naked, and he clothed me. I was sick, and he visited me. I was in prison, and he came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, or took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then he shall say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as he did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. This is not a parable, it's a prophecy. The story of the wise and foolish virgins was a parable. The story of the talents was a parable. The story of the sheep and goats is a prophecy, pure and simple. And it's an important prophecy. In it, the Lord Jesus Christ calls himself a king for the first and last time. And then having spoken the prophecy and announced himself openly and publicly to be a king, just three days before men arrayed him in mock and purple, crowned him with thorns, and set him up on a cross of shame. Having announced himself a king, and having done it twice in a single prophecy, he calmly stepped down and prepared himself and his own for the way of the cross. Before we examine the prophecy, we need to clear the ground. In order to understand it, we must put it back into its proper setting. The people here assembled to face the judgment of the king are those who have just come through the horrors of the great tribulation. This dreadful time, sometimes called the time of Jacob's trouble, will last for three and a half years. The beast, the devil's Messiah, will be on the throne of the world. He'll have carried all before him. His image will be set up in the confiscated temple of the Jews. All men everywhere, upon pains of death, will be required to publicly wear the beast's mark as their badge of loyalty to the state and its sovereign lord. The false prophet will persuade men that the beast is God 
and that he's to be worshipped. The special objects of his hatred will be the Jews. There have been many times before when the Jews have been bitterly persecuted. Anti-Semitism has always been endemic on the earth. Hitler's Holocaust illustrates what happens in history when the hatred of the Jew becomes epidemic in the history of a nation. But the persecutions of the beast will stand apart from all other attempts to exterminate the Jews. They'll be more savage, more systematic, more sustained, more successful than any other such attempt ever made in history. The great majority of the, of the Jews in the land of Israel will be killed because they'll be right at the center of the fire. But Jews worldwide will be in peril. They'll be friendless and forsaken, hated and hunted, hounded, tortured, tormented, murdered, and massacred by the million. In those days, to befriend a Jew will be a rare act of courage and commitment, just as it was in the days of the Nazis. Except that with his occult powers to aid him, the beast system of espionage will surpass anything man has ever known, because demons will be his to command. He'll doubtless use them to spy upon all men everywhere. And to, be to befriend a Jew in those days will not be an act merely of courage, not merely of compassion, but of outright commitment. To, to befriend a Jew to the extent of feeding and clothing and visiting can only mean that such a person is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he recognizes the Jews as his chosen people. I'm sure many of us have read The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom, or seen the movie. She tells how persecutions of the Jews began to grow in Holland after the Nazi occupation. Father, she cried to her old watchmaker, Dad, Father, those poor people. Those poor people, her father echoed. But to Corrie Ten Boom's surprise, she saw that he was looking at the soldiers, not at the Jews they were marching away. The Ten Booms decided to do something to help the Jews. They did all they could. They provided food and strength and a place to hide. Bricks and mortar and paint hid a secret room in their home in which Jews could hide during the raids. These things were carried into the house in the case of an old grandfather clock. And then a trap was set. The bait, a cry for help. They answered the plea and the Gestapo closed in. The Ten Booms paid the price for caring. Prison, solitary confinement, the horror camp of the Nazis at Ravensbrück, hunger, disease, filth, brutality, grinding impossible loads, and death. But there were not many Corrie Ten Booms in Holland or the rest of Europe. Gentiles who out of sheer conviction and committal were ready to throw in their lot with the Jews. In Denmark, when the Nazis' decree that all Jews must wear a distinguishing badge was passed, King Hawken deliberately put one on too. And when the king put one on, the great majority of the Danish people did the same, and thus defied the Germans. But that was a rare exception. For the most part, the price was too high. It was too dangerous. In the Great Tribulation, it will be far more dangerous. The price will be far higher. That's the first thing to remember. The next thing to remember is that the church will have gone. God's dealings will again be with Israel. The noble remnant of Israel will carry the torch of testimony during the period. There'll be the two witnesses, 
there'll be the 144,000. And then two angelic voices will be added, heralding God's displeasure with the world and his vowed wrath against all who receive the mark of the beast. And last of all, he'll send an angel. The gospel will be reduced to its barest essentials. He'll preach the everlasting gospel. Fear God. Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Revelation 14.6 In this everlasting gospel, there's nothing at all about Christ. For the majority of those who will hear this gospel will never have heard of Christ. It's the primeval, pristine gospel, the bare bones of the gospel, God-centered rather than Christ-centered. It will call for three things. Conviction. Fear God. The world will be in dire fear of the beast. God says, fear me. Not only conviction, but confession. Give glory to him, for the hour of judgment is come. It's no longer the day of judgment. It's the hour of judgment. And then, too, not only conviction and confession, but consecration. Worship him that made heaven and earth. God does not hold men accountable to acknowledge Christ if they've never heard of him. But he does hold them accountable to acknowledge the Creator. Before we get down to this prophecy of the sheep and the goats, we need to look carefully at the two great principles which underlie the judgment of the king in dealing with the Gentile world. First of all, the judgment recognizes the principle of natural blindness. Both the people who are called sheep and those who are called goats cry, When saw we thee? They claim, and rightly so, that they never knew him. They never saw him. For those of us who have heard the gospel of Christ, there's no such excuse. Jesus says to those, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. John 12:47 and 48. But when we think of the countless millions of Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims that there are in the world today, even in this day of grace, who have never heard the name of Jesus, we can see that there will be just grounds for the statement, When saw we thee? The majority of people have never had the gospel of Christ presented to them at all. I believe that the majority of those named sheep in this prophecy are people who live outside the pale of Christendom. So far as the people of Christendom are concerned, the strong delusion will seize them. They've heard of Jesus. They've known of the King. They've willfully rejected him. But those arraigned now are those who, for the most part, have never heard of Christ at all. And so the principle of ignorance is a large factor in their judgment. Those counted righteous did not know that in siding with the Jews, they were siding with Christ. They were, but they didn't know it. So there's the principle of natural blindness. Secondly, the judgment recognizes the principle of natural behavior. The criteria of judgment is not, what did you do with Jesus? For they'd never known him. But what did you do with the Jews? In the day in which these people live, Natural behavior would dictate caution, to say the least. Self-interest, self-preservation, will dictate the need for turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the plight of the Jews, just as most Germans did during the Nazi regime. The prudent thing, the natural thing, 
will be to look the other way and keep your mouth shut. Since the criteria of judgment will be, what did you do with the Jews? It's obvious that two dependent factors will also be essential. The opportunity to do good was present. Now, it is a remarkable and indisputable fact that Jews are found everywhere in the world. In at least 20 key and powerful nations, they hold important positions in commerce, education, finance, medicine, science, art, and government. But they are scattered far and wide in greater or smaller numbers throughout the whole world. When the time comes for the Lord to finally gather the Jews back, they'll be gathered back from the four winds and from the four quarters of the earth. They are found, therefore, scattered abroad, coextensively with the nations or the Gentiles for whom they are to form the test during the tribulation period. So the opportunity to do good to the Jew are therefore unwittingly but actually to confess faith in Christ will be present. This is an important factor in this judgment. And then not only the opportunity to do good was present, but the obligation to do good was equally present. Every man has an obligation to respond to the test that God sets up in a way which will show some measure of belief in God. The judgment before us is one of works. But it is works of such a nature that God can find in it the germ of faith. As we've seen, the days will be so dark and so dreadful and the price of befriending a Jew so high that the very act of doing so will bespeak some kind of faith in God even though it's the faith as a grain of mustard seed. In the context of the prophecy, then, works become the silent and shining evidence that the Gentiles depicted the sheep dared to believe God and had it counted unto them for righteousness, and they betrayed their belief in God, glimmering and feeble as it was, by what they did. This is the background for the prophecy. If we lose sight of this background, then we shall be skating on some very thin ice indeed and shall find ourselves in danger of falling through into the icy waters of doctrinal error. Now let's get the outline of the prophecy in our minds. The prophecy divides into three very distinct parts. We have the throne in verse 31, we have the prongs in verses 32 to 33, and we have the thrill in verses 34 to 46. We begin with the throne. When the Son of Man, we read, shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. What a sight it will be! All the holy angels will be at his back. All the unholy angels will have already been cast down from their seats of power in the heavenlies, and the church, God's heavenly people, will fill the thrones and positions which once they occupied. As one angel in one night could smite all the vast host of Sennacherib, the sight of all these holy angels must surely strike awe and fear into the hearts of men. But attention will not be focused for long on the angels. Attention will be focused on the Son of Man in his glory. As we've seen, that title, the Son of Man, relates primarily to Israel. It's the title that the Lord employs of himself in describing his relationship to the world of men. And he entered that world as a Jew. As a man, as a Jew, as a descendant of Abraham, 
as the rightful claimant to the throne of David, as the rightful claimant to the throne of the world, as a king. He is now, he is now going to settle the question as to who will or will not enter into the earthly kingdom. So we have the throne in verse 31. We have the throngs in verses 32 and 33. There are three distinct groups mentioned in the prophecy. The sheep, the goats, and those who are described by the king as my brethren. The sheep and the goats are Gentiles. Those called my brethren are Jews. First then, there are the Hebrew people. There are three kinds of brotherhood presented to us in the New Testament. We note from the prophecy here that the brethren under consideration are called the least of these my brethren. There are those who are his brethren, who are his brethren because they have been born again, born from above, born of God, born of the Spirit. Hebrews 2.11 says, He's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's speaking of those sons that he brings into glory. We today are thus honored. He calls us brethren. But then there are those who are his brethren because they were born into the human family which it pleased him to enter when he stepped off his throne on high to be incarnated as a man amongst men. There's one occasion in the gospel where while uh, he was talking to the people, we read that, Behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Matthew 12:46. The Lord Jesus made a comparison between these brothers of his, born of the same mother, and those who were his spiritual kin. We read, Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto them that told him, Who is my brother? Who are my brethren? For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew 12, 46-50 The two kinds of brethren are compared with the one with the other. Those who have his father for their father are far closer kin to him than those who happen to have his mother for their mother. The third and lowest degree of brotherhood is that which happens from being one of the same nation. National brotherhood was, and still is, a strong feature of Jewish national life. We read of Moses, for instance, that when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. As Stephen puts it when on trial for his life before the Sanhedrin, for he, Moses, supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, Acts 7, 23-25. According to the Mosaic law, the Israelites were never to set a king over their tribes who was not one of them in the bonds of national brotherhood. One for among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee which is not thy brother, so ran the law. Deuteronomy 17:15. Moreover, in describing the character of the king who should be permitted to reign over the children of Israel, the law further stated, He shall write a copy of this law in a book, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. Deuteronomy 17, 18-20 It is in the least relationship, therefore, that the Lord Jesus spoke of himself as being one of the brethren of the Jewish people. 
and in this, as in all else, he kept the law of God by showing that his heart was not lifted up above these, the least of his brethren. And of all the people in the world, the Jews at the end of the tribulation period will be the most detested and the most despised. Let's take a moment here to think of an illustration. November the 11th is called Veterans Day in the United States. In Britain, it's called Armistice Day. The actual date commemorates the end of the First World War and the signing of the armistice between Germany and the victorious powers. In Britain, on November the 11th, one would stand by the side of the road and see marching to the cenotaph a great contingent of honored men. Every year that group gets smaller and smaller in number. There are very few left today. They lead the parade with backs upright and heads held high, though some of them have to hobble on sticks. The uninitiated might ask, who are these men? And on them hangs a story. We go back to the time of the First World War. Unprepared as always, Britain sent across the little stretch of water we call the English Channel, what it was pleased to call the British Expeditionary Force. It was ill-prepared and under-equipped. But it was made up of the same kind of men who had fought the French at Agincourt and stopped Napoleon Cold at Waterloo. But the German Kaiser was unimpressed. With a sneer on his lips, he exclaimed, This is a contemptible army. So you ask again, who are these? This ever-dwindling group of aging men, marching proudly in front of the parade. They are called the Old Contemptibles. The name of shame had become the name of fame. Those marching old-age pensioners in the forefront of the parade lift their heads high. The name given to them in derision and scorn made their blood run faster on Armistice Day. They are the Old Contemptibles. I saw them myself as a boy. During the Great Tribulation, the Jews will become the world's contemptibles. They will, be they will become once more what they have been so often and for so many long sad centuries in European history, objects of derision and shame. To be a Jew will be considered to be the filth and off-scouring of the earth. The beast will see to that. But look at them now. They are called by the king, my brethren. They are his beloved old contemptibles. They're his brethren. They've shared his rejection. And the name of shame has become the name of fame. During the tribulation age, the beast's propagandists will preach Jew hate throughout the world with a power and a persuasiveness and a passion not even known in Hitler's Germany. But the assembled Gentiles, standing there at this judgment, will be astonished to see the hated and detested Jews standing quietly by the side of the throne. So then, there are the Hebrew people. They'll be there. And then there are the heathen peoples. The Gentiles will be there. All nations, it says. All the holy angels will be present too. All heaven attends as all earth stands to be judged. From the north and the south, the east and the west, from Africa and from Asia, from Europe and America, from the far-flung islands of the sea, from pole to pole, they'll be assembled by divine decree. No doubt the angels 
who played such a prominent role in the events of the apocalypse will see to it that all mankind obeys the dread summons. We must remember, of course, that the Earth's population will not be what it is today, what with war and famine, pestilence and earthquake, persecution and natural disaster. The population of the world will be thinned out by the time this judgment takes place. Millions will have died at Armageddon alone. But what's left of the world population will be there, standing huddled in the valley of Jehoshaphat just outside Jerusalem, waiting for that dreaded king yonder to open proceedings against the race. And so we see that they are summoned, and then they are separated. Before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. They're made to stand before him one by one. He looks at each one. He says, stand here on my right hand. Or he says, stand there on my left hand. No word is spoken. As a shepherd can easily distinguish between a sheep and a goat, so the Lord will easily distinguish between man and man. Character is to be the basis of judgment. A sheep is the very emblem of gentleness and simplicity, patience and usefulness. The sheep will be those who have been beneficent and capable of goodness. A goat is naturally quarrelsome, lascivious, and excessively bad-scented. It has long been associated with riotous, profane, and impure men, and for centuries, too, has been identified with Satanism and witchcraft. The goats represent those people who during the tribulation were given up to their own passions and lusts, and who cared nothing for the sufferings of others. So the sheep are separated silently from the goats. Two groups begin to emerge among the Gentiles, those now standing on the right hand of the king, and those standing on his left. The position is very significant. The right hand was the place of honor. In Psalm 45 we read, Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. The Lord Jesus today is sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jacob changed ben Benjamin's name from Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow, to Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. It's the place of honor. This judgment seemingly takes place in what we call the valley of Jehoshaphat, according to Joel chapter 3, verse 2 and verse 12. The valley of Jehoshaphat is the name given to the valley between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, what in the time of the Lord was called the Kidron Valley. Sitting on the throne of his glory, the Lord Jesus will be in sight of that dark valley through which he passed on his way to Gethsemane. In this valley, good King Jehoshaphat, many centuries before, overthrew the united enemies of Israel in a spectacular victory in which Israel did nothing and God did everything. This judgment then takes place in that self-same valley. The Lord's throne will be on Olivet. The Gentiles will be massed in the valley. Those made to stand upon his right hand will take up their position over against Jerusalem but those made to take their stand on his left hand will be in a fearful spot. They will stand by Tophet, the valley of the sons of Hinnom, 
a place of human sacrifice, the place where they burned the garbage fires of Jerusalem in olden days. The very name Tophet and Hinnom has become synonymous with hell. And so we have the throne, and then we have the throngs. In verses 34 to 36, we have the thrill. The king now speaks. He speaks first to those on his right hand, and a thrill runs through the host, a thrill of happiness. They are saved, they are secure. For them, it is the kingdom. They can march singing down the mount and on into Jerusalem. We note, first of all, their standing, verses 34 to 36. Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and he gave me meat. I was thirsty, he gave me drink. I was a stranger, he took me in. Naked, and he clothed me. I was sick, and he visited me. I was in prison, and he came unto me. They have a standing in the blessing of the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The closest, perhaps, to which we can come in understanding their standing is to remind ourselves of Rahab. James tells us that Rahab was justified by works. Paul tells us she was justified by faith. In Hebrews 11.31, we read also that by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them, that believed not, when she received the spies in peace. She received the Lord's people into her home and hid them from their enemies. And from them she heard the way of salvation, and in that salvation she put her faith. But her works and her faith are so closely intertwined that it's impossible to extricate the one from the other. She was given a standing with the people of God because she took her stand with the people of God. And so we have their standing. Next we have their surprise, verses 37 to 39. Then shall the righteous answer. We need to note that. They're accounted righteous. So they must have believed, you see. We read of Abraham that Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Then shall the righteous answer, as they stand there clothed in a righteousness not their own. They shall answer, When saw we thee a stranger? They did not know that when they did what they did, to a Jew. They came under the full primeval blessing of faithful Abraham. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. The same blessing, confirmed to Jacob, and confessed by Balaam. And so we note their surprise. We note also their salvation in verse 40. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, You've done it unto me. The Lord in his grace, the Lord who reads the heart, the Lord who knows what is in man, the Lord who will accept faith, even though it's as small as a grain of mustard seed, the Lord is pleased to count what they had done for the Jews as having been done to himself. Theirs was the thrill of happiness. The king now speaks to those on his left hand. Theirs is the thrill of horror. Again, there are three parts to the sentence. 
we notice first of all their curse in verses 41 to 43. Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was a hungered, and ye gave me no meat. The curse comes upon them. The Lord can find nothing, nothing at all, in their lives that he can bless, not even a token faith. We notice not only their curse, but their complaint. Verse 44. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? As though to say, Lord, if we'd seen you, if we'd seen you in that condition, then of course we would have ministered to you. And finally we note their condemnation. Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily, I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And there the prophecy ends. There's one note in closing, a searching and a sobering note. The lost are not condemned for what they did. We know from several places in the scriptures that they will exercise extreme cruelty toward the Jews. Thus, for instance, what we have in Psalm 44, verses 10 to 15. But they're not judged for that. The question of what they did is not so much as raised. They are judged for what they failed to do. Their sins of omission alone is enough to send them to a lost eternity. And that seems to put the finger on the very crux of the matter. It's not so much what people do that sends them to a lost eternity. It's what they fail to do, particularly what they fail to do with Jesus. As John puts it, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son, the Son of God, hath not life. First John 5, verses 11 to 12. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, said Jesus, verse 46. These were the last words of his public ministry. And with that, he had no more to say. The big question today is simply this. Not what have I done to the Jews, but what have I done with Jesus? <laughs>